Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to The Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, nearly the entire international sporting community has come out in force to condemn Vladimir Putin and freeze out Russia. FIFA disqualified Russia from the upcoming World Cup. The International Olympic Committee called for a ban on all Russian athletes. Formula One Racing, UEFA, the governing body for European soccer, and the International Ice Hockey Federation all announced that they would move upcoming events out of Russia, while an array of other international federations in sports ranging from cycling to rugby all banned Russian teams from competition. It's a stark departure from what had become an immensely visible and lucrative partnership between Putin and the lords of sport around the world. It's a partnership that we at Real Sports have reported extensively over the last decade. Powerful sporting organizations like the IOC teaming with Russia, earning them billions of dollars, while giving Putin a golden opportunity to use sports as a tool to stoke nationalist pride and gain international legitimacy. On today's podcast, we will retrace some of that history. You'll hear an excerpt from our award-winning 2016 report on the IOC about Russia and the Sochi Olympics. Then later in the podcast, we'll turn to a conversation about how the war in Ukraine has, at least for now, upended Putin's longstanding mission to be a central figure in the world of sports. For that, we will welcome Michael Payne. Payne was the IOC's director of marketing for almost two decades before moving over to Formula One, where he helped bring F1 racing into Russia. We'll discuss with Payne the significance of these recent announcements and why it took so long for organizations like the IOC to break ranks. But first, we're going to start by playing an excerpt from Bernard Goldberg's reporting in that 2016 IOC special. The clip you're about to hear sheds some light on how Vladimir Putin and autocrats before him have used sports to advance political and military objectives, and in Putin's case, used the Olympic Games in Sochi as a launching pad for his last invasion of Ukraine back in 2014. Take a listen. In the months before the Sochi Olympics, Russian leader Vladimir Putin was fighting a sagging economy and diminished respect, both at home and abroad. But he had an ace in the hole, the Olympics, his Olympics, which he would use to rally the Russian people behind him and prepare them for war. Images can be a powerful force. And if there's one thing Vladimir Putin understands, it's power. And with these images, he was sending a message to the entire world. Russia, under his leadership, had arrived. It was a powerful modern country capable of staging the greatest show on earth. Putin had personally lobbied the IOC to get the games, and now, front and center on the world stage, he was a star. 
объявляю открытыми. And that's precisely what had his critics worried. Critics who say it wasn't just fun and games that Putin had in mind. Dictators, they need an opportunity to be in the limelight. And what could be better than the Olympic Games? Turning this big celebration into their own, you know, uh, so one-man show, it's political. Garry Kasparov is the legendary chess champion turned Russian politician who now lives in New York. He says that when the IOC gave Putin the Olympics, they also gave him something else he craved, the appearance of legitimacy. It's for mutual benefits. Uh, IOC gets what it wants, but dictators, they, they get what they want. Which is? Which is, you know, publicity, which is, you know, uh, offering them more credibility, so cleaning up their reputation. It helps him with propaganda inside the country. It's been happening for years. Totalitarian regimes partnering with the IOC to win support at home and respect abroad. The Soviets did it in 1980 and China in 2008. But it all began long before that, when the IOC provided the stage for a rising dictator in Germany. You know, it all started with Adolf Hitler in 1936. At that time, Hitler was not Hitler yet. Not the Hitler from history books. Olympic Games in 1936 would actually boost Hitler to move uh, further with, you know, not conquest for Olympic medals, but... Uh, but conquest. Know, conquest for, you know, to grab real land. Hitler saw the Games as a chance to promote German supremacy, and his propaganda minister came up with an idea. To show off the German countryside, he had runners carry a torch from one town to another. That's right, the IOC's beloved torch relay was created to promote the Third Reich. The torch was an, a genius invention of the Nazis because Nazis always wanted to play with fire. You should give us, you know, uh, some ideas about the danger of the use of Olympic symbols and, and Olympic spirit. What can happen if, if, if these, these ideas are being used by dictators to promote their clandestine agenda. And you're saying Putin used Sochi for similar reasons? Yeah, I think so. It's very important to remember the lessons of history, you know, how Olympic Games, how Olympic movement, you know, help dictators promote their agenda. Promote their agenda with a stamp of approval from the IOC. At the Sochi Games, the IOC promised the world peace. The Olympic Games set an example for a peaceful society. But Vladimir Putin already had other ideas. Before the Olympics, his popularity rating in Russia had been falling steadily for years. But when the games began, this. Russians rallied behind their leader, especially when Russian athletes began winning gold medals in staggering numbers. Two years later, the world would learn the truth. A major international scandal breaking today over an alleged state-sponsored doping scheme. Putin's government reportedly had crafted the most elaborate doping scheme in history to turn Sochi into a Russian gold rush. Putin was flying high, and a few days after the Olympics ended, he used his new popularity to flex his muscles, invading neighboring Ukraine 
annexing Crimea and pushing the world closer to an east-west showdown than at any time since the Cold War. He decided it was a great opportunity, you know, just to, you know, use the Olympic Games as a springboard to do what he had in mind a long time ago. Olympic Games, you know, gave Putin this extra confidence he needed to go beyond imaginable. I'm sure if we had IOC officials in the room, they'd say, are you suggesting that because we gave the games to Russia, we're partially responsible? Yes. Yes, that's what I'm saying. We first began investigating Putin's partnership with the IOC in 2013, before the Sochi Games began. That's when we met political opposition leader Boris Nemtsov, who told us that Putin had partnered with the IOC to gain glory and power at the expense of his people. Putin spent $50 billion for what? For what? To put on a show that tells the for, world. For, show for himself. In all of Russia, Boris Nemtsov was Putin's loudest critic. Before the Sochi Games, he hit the streets in Moscow, handing out copies of an expose he had written on Putin and the Olympics. Risky business in a country that doesn't take kindly to dissent, especially when the target in the crosshairs is Vladimir Putin. You can't say anything bad? Strictly forbidden. Strictly. Are, are you concerned for your well-being at all? Well, I was born in Russia, and I will die here. Well, yeah, but you don't, so want, to, you don't want to die before the Olympics. Uh. <laughs> I hope I survive these Olympics. <laughs> I know uh, how risky is my job. You do? Yeah, of course, I know. Nemtsov did survive the Olympics, but then turned his attention to what some think the games helped spawn. The war in Ukraine. He was just about to publish a report critical of Putin when Nemtsov himself became the target in the crosshairs, this time literally. Tonight, what may be the highest profile assassination in Russia since the Stalin era. The target, one of Vladimir Putin's fiercest critics, Boris Nemtsov, was gunned down last night in the shadow of the Kremlin, what's considered to be one of that country's most secure areas. The way Boris attacked Putin's Sochi project and many other projects, I think, you know, made Boris doomed. In the years since the Sochi Games, Putin has continued down this same path, jumping at every opportunity to host grand sporting events that could consolidate his power domestically and internationally, while forcibly silencing critics who dare to question him. Still, no matter how brazen Putin's Russia became in recent years, the massive sporting organizations around the world have been more than happy to play ball and collect lucrative sums, allowing Russia to host the World Cup in 2018, an annual Formula One race, and seemingly any other sporting extravaganza that Putin's heart desired. Even just weeks ago, as Putin publicly threatened an imminent invasion of Ukraine, he was at the opening ceremonies in Beijing. But now, the war in Ukraine has changed everything, sparking a swift and nearly unanimous repudiation of Russia from every corner of the sports world. And to discuss that, we're now joined by Michael Payne. Michael is an expert in the business of international sport. He spent nearly two decades as the marketing director for the International Olympic Committee. He then went on to Formula One, where he helped bring that annual F1 race into Russia. And today, he advises sports business brands all around the world. Michael, thank you for being with us. My great pleasure to join you. 
So, Michael, this isn't the first time Putin's Russia or another country has taken unpopular military action or committed human rights abuse. And yet we haven't in many years seen this sort of reaction from the sporting community. What do you think made this moment different? And have you been surprised by the response? I think what made it fundamentally different this time was that Russia formally broke the Olympic truce following these games. I think the collective opinion with the economic and political sanctions, sport was just not able to sit by and watch. Uh, But that being said, I was still surprised by the strength of the IOC's reaction. I thought they would still accept neutral athletes parading under a neutral banner, no Russian symbolism. And the fact that they requested that all invitations be withdrawn, no events be staged in Russia, in my view, is probably the toughest uh, move and sanctions that the IOC has taken since the early 60s when South Africa was thrown out of the Olympic movement for its apartheid policies. Let's look at the economic implications here, the voiding of substantial sports sponsorship deals with Russian corporations, major championship events being pulled out of Russia, FIFA disqualifying Russia from World Cup participation, all told, Michael, how significant are the financial costs of these measures to Russia? I think the economic impact to Russia is significant, but they would pale in significance to the various economic sanctions that are being applied. But what really matters with the sporting sanctions is Russians are really passionate about their sport. Putin himself probably isn't a political leader in the world that is so passionate and committed to sport. And this statement sends a very clear, strong message that the world is totally opposed to Putin's invasion, Putin's war. And that message to the Russian people probably cuts through the clutter a lot quicker than the economic sanctions are going to be. And I think that's really the power of sport, to really connect with the Russian people immediately and to force them to say, what's going on? This is not what we were told was happening. Why is our sport being taken away from us? Why is the IOC suddenly turned against us? Because you know the IOC has been repeatedly criticized for a time is maybe being viewed as too close or too soft on Russia. They didn't take as tough sanctions over the doping fallout and affair from Sochi. And so the Russians, you know, they're a sporting superpower. And to suddenly have all sport closed down creates an immediate reaction within the people as to what's going on. Some of this blowback we're seeing originated with individual athletes. For instance, members of the Australian swim team vowed to boycott a championship in Russia. Top-ranked Ukrainian tennis player Elena Svitolina refused to play against any Russian or Belarusian opponent. If not for those sorts of actions, do you believe the organizations themselves would have responded so harshly? Well, there's no question looking at the International Paralympic Committee and the Paralympic Games that have just started in Beijing, they did an immediate U-turn on their policy when various athletes and teams said, sorry, we're not going to compete against Russians. They were trying to propose a solution that would allow Russian athletes to compete as neutrals because they were scared that the in the Paralympic case, the German courts would overrule the ban. 
I think actually there's a very real risk here that the courts are going to be dragged in, in particular the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and looking very carefully as to what is the legal premise for the ban. I don't think anybody questions the moral issues, but I think it's far from clear that the legal issue is as on solid ground. And this risks getting very, very ugly. Another group caught up in all of this is the Russian oligarchs who wield tremendous power in sports. They too are under fire, most notably Roman Abramovich amidst external pressure and likely threat of sanctions, announced plans to sell Chelsea, the prestigious English soccer team. Should we expect, Michael, that for the foreseeable future, this entire class of Russian oligarchs who have been big players in the sporting landscape are just persona non grata? I think so. I think uh, I think Russia has become toxic within the sports movement until there is a fundamental change in attitude and policy. You know, there was an escalation in terms of Russia's attitude to doping. They were given repeated warnings. They were given opportunities to reform. And this, if you want, was the final drop in the glass that's now overflown and have said enough is enough. Given the track record, Michael, of the IOC, FIFA, and others, surely you can understand why some may say these are purely PR-driven responses made in the moment, but these organizations don't really care about Ukraine. These punishments will be temporary, and in time, Putin and his pocketbook will be welcomed back at the table. You say to that what? I say, first of all, I mean, is the IOC and the various international sports organizations are they any different from any government or politician or other international organization that has been working with Russia and Putin for the last two decades? I think it's all very well to say that the IOC, you've repeatedly compromised with Russia over the last decade on doping. So has every government and politician. It's a very difficult fine line as to when do you allow politics into sport and when do you try to maintain your neutrality? And you know, for years, people used to say, oh, the International Olympic Committee or FIFA, it's not political. It's just about bringing the world together. That's no longer credible. I mean, when you bring the world together for the world's largest sports event, you're at the forefront of politics. But if you get dragged into a political issue, the precedent it sets, well, you banish that nation. So Next year, America is at war with Syria or whoever. Should you ban them? So the sports world has always tried to maintain a neutrality and saying their mission is not to solve the world's political problems, it's to bring the world together in sport. But at a certain stage, in this particular case, where Putin so blatantly broke the Olympic truce, you know, the sports world said, Hang on, enough is enough, time out. But there is a track record here where sports is concerned. I mean, the IOC turned a blind eye to genocide in China just last month. We have a World Cup upcoming in Qatar where real sports has reported egregious migrant worker abuse. F1 has annual races in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, hotbeds of human rights issues. Now these groups have developed some sort of conscience where the war in Ukraine is concerned? I think you've got a balancing act. You referenced the China and genocide issue. One's got to remember that China was elected as host seven years ago when the political situation was very different. The way things subsequently evolved, the IOC went on to introduce human rights clauses into their future host city contracts. 
Does that mean that China is going to be able to host the games anytime soon, or there's got to be a fundamental change in policy? These are not things you fix overnight. There's the argument by bringing the sport to the country, you open up the debate. There is the argument that you should not take any sports events to those countries until it is a fully accepted, I'm trying to think of the right term, human rights standard or, or whatever protocol. And But then judged by who? Is it judged by the West? Is it judged by the East? Is it judged by the Arabs? It's not easy looking at each of these issues or problems and trying to make sure you judge it from a global perspective and not just from a particular, whether it's Anglo-Saxon viewpoint that may be different from a Latin viewpoint that is different from an Arab viewpoint. And that's something I've seen and learned firsthand over 40 years at the forefront of the sports movement that trying to maintain the correct but neutral perspective and balanced perspective is not always straightforward. Well, where Putin specifically is concerned, Michael, as our reporting over the years has revealed, he's at times been egregiously corrupt in his planning of massive events like the Sochi Games. Evidence suggests he's repeatedly had critics assassinated or imprisoned. He has previously invaded other countries. Why did it take this long for the IOC and others in global sport to take any sort of meaningful action? Was anybody else taking sanctions against the country during those incidents that you refer to? Again, I think you know, the, the sports movement sometimes is first, sometimes it's following. But it's, you know, it's, it's because of the importance for sport, because it brings the world together, has the biggest media events there is, it's easy to point the finger. And I mean, I'm looking at a lot of politicians and countries, you know, rewriting history pretty fast at the moment of saying, we told you, we warned you. said, no, you didn't. But you just mentioned the power of sport. Thomas Bach himself and the leadership of the IOC love to parrot the rhetoric of how the Olympics and global sport can bring the world together. Putin invaded Ukraine the last time, annexing Crimea in 2014, right as the Sochi Olympics were wrapping up and the world had been busy marveling at his $50 billion sports extravaganza. So it bears the question, have the IOC, FIFA, F1, others enabled this sort of escalation and the aggression we're seeing now by giving Putin a sort of cover? I think the... Economic engagement probably did a lot more enabling than sport, and it's not to belittle sport's role. Putin used sport to present a new Russia on the world stage, and at times was very effective at presenting a, a new image for the country and rebranding the country. The tragedy of what we've seen unfold over the last month is a quantum step backwards going back two or three decades. And you again look at the reaction that is developing in Russia and people saying, hang on, this is not us. This is not about us. We don't agree with this. This is very much an individual's decision and war. It is not one of the Russian people. And that's part of the tragedy. I've had the exchanges with friends in Russia from the sports movement totally shocked as to what is going on. And this, in some senses, where the sports boycott is hitting home immediately to the Russian people, is this is not what they planned and expected. And the fact that sport is joining the economic and political sanctions when sport is supposed to be neutral is reinforcing the message and hitting home, and hopefully enough people in Russia, forcing 
change in policy. Maybe it's naive to think that, but at the moment, I think every possible lever needs to be applied in order to bring pressure. And as people have said, sport can't sit back on the sidelines on this one. Do you believe that sport is culturally significant enough in Russia and significant enough to Putin personally that this sort of blowback could alter his thinking in terms of how he proceeds forward? To the Russian people, yes. To Putin, no. I mean, this, you know, much as he cares about sport, you know, whether events can take place in the country or Russian athletes can compete, I don't think he cares anymore. This has got to be driven by the Russian people understanding that the whole of humanity and the world is opposed to this. You yourself, Michael, were instrumental in bringing F1 into Russia for the Russian Grand Prix. It's another massive global sporting event that's allowed Putin to put on a grand show for the world. Knowing what you knew then about Putin's Russia, did you have any apprehension about pushing such an event forward? It was a different time. I think, to be honest, you you have to judge how the world is and the, and the state of play at that moment in time. You know, of course, if you knew the way this was how things were going to play out, you wouldn't have embarked on that adventure. But Putin and Russia in 2012, 2013, when we had those discussions, was viewed very differently, as he was do, viewed very differently by every politician and country in the world. You noted earlier this this difficult question of precedent, how to handle authoritarian regimes or controversial actors on the on the global stage. Dmitry Chernyshenko, who was Putin's right hand man in organizing the Sochi Games, he brought that up last week as both he and Putin were stripped by the IOC of their Olympic orders, awards that had been granted to them. I believe it's the first time anybody had been stripped of this honor. Chernyshenko took issue with that precedent, saying it opened Pandora's box. So how should, Michael, international sporting organizations balance financial goals and potential business dealings with deep-pocketed autocrats with principles of humanity? Is it possible to do both? As important as Russia has been as a host of major events, one should not get out of perspective the economic financial role. It's minor. When you look at the economic contribution of Europe, of America, the TV rights, media rights that Russia pays for sports events is minuscule. You have, I think, two oligarchs who are presidents of world sports, secondary sports, like fencing, where their contribution to those sports has been key to the survival. But overall, economically, in my view, it's just not been a driving factor. The reason events have gone to Russia, world championships, is because Russia is a major sporting superpower and historically has had very strong performance. That Russia hosted the World Cup they're a major footballing player. That Russia had hosted the Winter Olympic Games. They're one of the strongest winter sports nations. So they earned the right to host those events because of their sporting credentials. Not the same if you want to get into a discussion about Qatar and the hosting of World Cup, where Qatar has no sporting credentials, no football history. And clearly, it was a bizarre economic financial decision that they ended up hosting the World Cup. I don't think you can apply the same protocol to Russia's history of hosting sports events. So doesn't that very point call into question the sincerity of these measures? I mean, moving forward, 
won't these organizations, if it's financially advantageous, continue to award bids for big events to the highest bidding authoritarian government, human rights or political implications be damned? I think in the last decade, there's become far greater sensitivity on the allocation of sporting events. As I said, the IOC itself has introduced human rights clauses into their hosting contracts. What became of that clause last month? Well, the Games had already been awarded. The Games to Beijing for the Winter Olympic Games were awarded in 2015. The IOC back then felt that the bidding process was no longer fit for purpose. And Bach, uh, the IOC president, undertook a wholesale review of the bidding process going forward and introduced host city, uh, introduced human rights clauses into the host city contract. Well, Michael, there is, as you note, so much about the longer term impact of this war that is yet to be seen, including in the world of sports. I'm certain we'll continue to follow it closely. But for now, we thank you for coming on to make sense of what we've seen thus far. My pleasure. And uh, it's been an honor to uh, engage with you today. And as you say, a discussion that I'm sure, uh, sadly, has many more weeks and months to run. And that'll do it for today's Real Sports podcast. We'll be back with a new episode following the premiere of the next Real Sports on March 22nd. And a quick reminder to everyone listening, you can watch all recent episodes of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on HBO Max. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time.